I can't tell you how much of a relief it was to watch an episode I actually liked after the previous one. Oh my god. I, uh, I was tweeting out while I was working on it, like, oh god, I need, I need to take a break. It's too much. It's too much. <laughs> this is a nice breather. I don't have too much to say about it, except for the fact that this is our first Ferengi episode. Now, I mean that in two ways. One, it's our first episode that really focuses on the Ferengi in Deep Space Nine, and two, it's our first episode that showcases the Ferengi. Ever. No, seriously. This is the episode that reinvented the Ferengi as a people, rather than a planet of hats. This is the beginning of their arc, which we'll go throughout most of the show. Um, this is one of those weird situations in which, I, I, as a fan of something, when you're writing something and then you introduce a new character or a new organization or whatever, and you postulate that they've been around for X years, one of the first things I tend to do is I think, so that means, and I just think back about the things we've already seen on camera or on book or in game or whatever, like, okay, this is, we, so they've been around for all of that. And I try to think that in mind and try to consider things. In fact, a lot of the books of Star Trek have actually talked about how Zek, in particular, was involved in the Ferengi Alliance's first interactions with the Federation because he was around then. He's been the Grand Nagus for a long time, right? But I wonder, how many people do that consciously? Because if I mention rules of acquisition, well, then you immediately think of the Ferengi, I'm sure. If I mentioned the Grand Nagus, you know what that means. Both of those things didn't exist until this episode. Now, this is pretty far into the Ferengi's existence. They've been around for uh, at least five years at this point. Weird to think about, isn't it? And that's, just to be completely blunt, one of the things I really like about uh, Deep Space Nine. I almost said about Ferengi. That's one of the things I like about Deep Space Nine, is the fact that it takes things fleshes them out more, adds more setting, more culture, more background, more depth to things. As I said earlier, and when I started the DS9 Ruminations, DS9 is the one that really fleshed out the fabric of Star Trek a lot more. But I digress. Uh, this episode also was another first. This is the first ROM episode. Now, that's doubly funny if you think about it. See, here's the thing. Rom it was still played by Max Grodenchik back in uh, Emissary and... I don't remember which one. He's been in one other episode. I can't remember the one. It's the one where they first established the school. Anyways, he played a Ferengi completely differently. So differently, you'd probably be... Uh, you know, It would be okay to think that it was literally a different character. It wasn't Rom. From now on out, this is much closer to what Rom's actually going to be like. With a couple of exceptions. Obviously, Rom will develop as a character throughout the show, as all of them do, really. And so, uh, he will turn into someone a little bit different. And that could be argued as the writers either changing their mind, or maybe it's just the fact that he has an actual amount of character development, an arc. Who knows? I will say, it's really weird thinking of Rom, who's generally the good Ferengi, uh, alongside Nog, and looking at him trying to literally murder his brother. Although it's worth noting that he was pretty hesitant to actually do that, but I'll talk about that more later. 
One other thing I want to mention about this episode. This is an A-plot, B-plot episode. And the two plots don't completely gel, but they don't really contrast each other to the point that it's actually irritating in this episode. Um, The other plot is pretty much all about Jake and Nog. I decided to look something up. Um, Sirik Lofton, in this episode, when they were recording this episode, was about 15 years old. Uh, Aaron Eisenberg was 24. Every now and again I think about that and I just kind of go, huh, because I actually have a lot of respect for Aaron Eisenberg. I haven't seen him in much, but pretty much everything I've seen him in, he's good. And he does nail Nog. He does a great job of the role. And I wouldn't have known that if I didn't bother to look it up, or, you know, wasn't the kind of person who looked into behind-the-scenes stuff in my show, or in my life, I should say. I I knew that before (laughs) I sat down and recorded this. I also want to give special shout-outs to Wallace Shawn. Wallace Shawn is awesome. Like, he's another of those actors that I don't see him in a lot of things, but every time I see him, I'm like, yeah, you know what I mean? He's, he hits a very particular brand of precision in his acting because he comes across as a fop, you know? Just someone you're not supposed to take seriously. And yet he tends to portray himself as very smart and very deadly. And that's in this episode, too. But before I talk about that, because I'm going to talk about that plot second, I want to talk about the first plot. The plot about Nog and Jake. Now... There's kind of an interesting dynamic, and I don't know if it was done on purpose, where Zek talks down to Karks, his son. I had to look up his name. In fact, I'm not even sure I'm getting the right name. Yep, it's Crax. Excuse me, I was getting the name wrong. So, Zek talks down to Crax. Crax talks down to everyone, but most notably, you know, Quark. Quark then talks down to Rom, uh, yeah, Rom, and Rom talks down to Nog. Now, the interesting thing is, this kind of shows, in a way, basically how Ferengi politics works. You feed up, or you bite down, to to simplify the terminology. Thing is, Nog breaks that chain a little bit, because he tries to do this with Jake, but it's so clear he doesn't know how to, and he doesn't want to. His heart's not in it. And so, to skip forward in the episode significantly, after... You know, he tries, and he has his little fake argument with with Jake. They get back together, and they say, you know what? I mean, can't we just be friends? And both of them are like, yeah, I mean, that's that's all I want. And I like that. It's actually a wonderfully human, down-to-earth moment that just made me go, damn, that's kind of cool. And it's also very, very Star Trek, but I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. So, Nog, uh, you know, Nog reaches out to Jake in school. You know, come on, help me out with this. I had a friend like that back in, uh, I guess this would have been sixth grade, I think. I had a friend like that who basically asked me to cover for him. And I had no problem doing that. It doesn't matter to me. I I was a straight-A kid in school. That wasn't the problem. So, you know, being being willing to cover for my friend, done. I've always been pretty big on loyalty. But I also had a talk with him afterwards, like, you know, you probably should have actually done that, right? Or maybe you should actually get the assignment done, kind of a thing, you know. Because, 
you can't just keep doing that forever. We're going to have some issues if you if you pull that. And he's like, okay, yeah, I know, I know. So I kind of get where both Jake and Nog are coming. Well, I guess I shouldn't say I, I get where Nog's coming from because I've never been in that situation myself. But I, I definitely get where Jake's coming from. And the episode helps me to feel for Nog. This is interesting. There's several scenes where the A&P plots just kind of merge a little bit. And one of them is the first dinner scene between the Nagus and Crax? Crax. He's actually kind of an immemorable character. In fact, he's never even mentioned again after this episode. So, Nagus, Crax, uh, Quark, Rom, and of course, Mr. Silent Butler guy. Can't forget him. <laughs> I mean, I guess after home, it just became in vogue. I don't know. Anyways, so, actually, didn't I recently cover that episode? Uh, Haven over on TNG. Where home was so... I don't even mean... I, it would be cool if Haven was yesterday's episode. I don't have the schedule in front of me, so I don't know. Anyways. So we got that scene. And we get the impression that while Rom has basically tolerated Nog going to school this whole time, and probably because Rom himself kind of wants to rise up above what he is, aspires beyond his station kind of a thing, you got to get, get that impression, uh, especially in later episodes, so he probably was okay with it, but at the same time, there was probably some issues there, some uh, drama, for lack of a better term, you know, some tension, some stress back at home for having done this. So you get the idea that Nog doesn't, is, he isn't a bad kid, is what I'm trying to say. And I stress that because, speaking from a lot of personal experience, there's a difference between, I'm sorry, I didn't have time to do my homework, because I have family issues and live in a broken home, or, you know, I've got these other stresses, or I live on a farm. I actually knew someone who was like this, who live on a farm, and I have tons of chores to do, you know. Or, I didn't do my homework because I'm a lazy snot and I'm making excuses. Now, I understand fully how a teacher has to try and treat both of those as if they're the lazy side and try to punish both of those, because it's kind of hard to tell the difference, especially if you don't know the specific circumstances of the individual. I'm trying really hard not to turn this into a rant about the American education system, so let's just cut that off there <laughs> and get to the point that I got the impression that Nog wants to be a good student, that he wants to learn, that he wants to understand and grow. Nog says in this episode, school is meaningless for me because it has no profit, and yet he actively seeks it, and when Jake offers to teach him to read, he jumps on it. He, 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 he seeks to it diligently. I hate to quote myself yet again. Or excuse me, I hate to quote myself. I'm an idiot. I hate to quote Pirates of the Caribbean yet again here, but not all treasure is silver and gold, mate. It is very obvious that to Nog, this has value. And you know what value means? Profit. So... There's also a couple of very human, down-to-earth, nice scenes. I really wish I'd kept with DS9. This episode would have washed the palette clean so much from, from the previous one. Good lord. I mean, I'm probably a little bit biased because I literally watched uh, Move Along Home today from my perspective. So I went straight from Move Along Home, literally like, like 20 minutes in between that and doing that rumination to watching uh, the Nagus. So little bit of a bias. Definitely some seesaw effect, Lorian plug. Uh, going on there. Or not Seesaw, excuse me, that would actually be Pendulum Effect. Forgive me. Screwed up my own terms. Anyways. So O'Brien's there. And he's talking to Cisco. Oh, I don't know. You know if, it was, if it was my kid, I'd probably try to discourage them. And what's funny about that 
is Cisco has been trying to discourage them, and he's basically been fighting a losing battle. Cisco, even in this episode, discourages them, and yet, at the same time, he's gotten to the point where he kind of recognizes that this is a losing battle, that there just are not that many friends that Jake can make on the school, and he knows, as most parents do, most intelligent parents, that social interactions with someone of the same age or age group is really, really important for a kid growing up. It's, it's true when they're like three, it's true when they're eight, it's true when they're 14. So, I like how he acknowledges that and just kind of says, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm not that happy with them being together. And he admits that. He admits his bias. Credit where credit is due. But then he says, you know, I mean, that would probably come between me versus Nog, and I think Nog would win. And then O'Brien's like, nah, I'd go for it. And Cisco's like, yeah, yeah, wait until your daughter's 14. And O'Brien's like, oh, oh, God. <laughs> No, no, no. Uh, I'm not going to speak of my daughter, but my niece, the one you guys have seen on camera every now and again, is five. And um, I'm kind of dreading when she hits the teenage years. I, I don't want to think about that, so I, so I don't. Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. So they have a fairly typical plot with the, uh, I, I guess, the B-plot with Jake, Nog, and the fathers. Rom doesn't want Nog hanging out with Jake or the humans or the school. Cisco doesn't want Jake hanging out with Nog or the Ferengi in general. Both of them disapprove. One really interesting thing. So, no, uh, Jake is really sad because Nog's been pulled from school. And he admits this to his father. His father says you can still hang out after school. And then they kind of talk about, you know, I, I mean, he says he didn't want to be my friend. He was kind of upset, blah, blah, blah. Now, what I find very interesting about this is what Cisco says is almost perfect. I have a topic here, by the way. I'm kind of building up to it. Cisco says, you know, the, the Federation ideal is reaching out to new cultures and getting along with them. And you know what? Of all the many things in Star Trek I find hard to swallow, I like that. I do. The idea of reaching out to new people and reaching out to new ideas and cultures and concepts and trying to find that common ground and trying to interact and, and, and be diplomatic and be cooperative. I love that idea. It's, 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 I actually call that the Mass Effect ideal because that's what those games were kind of built on, the first two anyways. Um, so, I so I like that, right? And Cisco adheres to that, but then he admits in, in, in the perfect tone, you know, sometimes... Like, we've tried to reach out to the Ferengi before, and that's true. You know, we don't really have common ground. So sometimes you just don't find that. Maybe it'd be better if you win some, you lose some. Every now and again, you just have to let them go. Tell you what, why don't we go play a game of baseball? Now, I like that because Cisco is prejudiced here. Hear me out. He has been since... God, I think the second episode, third episode, it's been a while. This whole Cisco doesn't like Jake hanging out with Nog thing goes back quite a ways. And, uh, and his presentation of that has always been, uh, but not too bad. Most fiction, when they have this scenario, you know, adult, child, friend of child, or romance interest, depending on the fictional work, I don't approve of that. Stomp, 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 is how most fiction usually does this kind of scene. DS9 has had a much more gentle and softer touch with Cisco's bias. Because he is biased. We need to acknowledge that. Here's the thing. He then immediately tries to cheer up his son. 
Remember, the first thing he said was, you can still hang out after school, trying to console him. When, when Jake says, I don't know, he then starts to try and segue into something that he would prefer, because he doesn't want his son hanging out with, with Nog. But, let's at least talk this through. And when he sees that that really upsets his son, he tries to cha change his mind with something that he knows his son enjoys, to try and uplift him a little bit, bring him out of his funk. And that doesn't quite work, of course. Now, the next bit, after this, is he sees the two of them running around hanging out, and he just gives a sigh. It's a really minor point, just... And then when he comes back, you know, he's like, hey, you didn't get home until midnight. And then, this is the important part, because he's not actually all that upset. Listen to his tone, watch his body language. Sisko's not all that upset until he confronts him about it, and Jake pretty much refuses to talk about it, tries to dodge the truth. Then Sisko gets upset. Then he basically barks, you know, you're getting home right after school. You're going to be home in time for dinner. The end. Then we have a nice little scene where Dax comes in. Now, what I find funny is Dax flat out says, you know, I was a failure of a parent as well, but I would go check out the situation myself. She doesn't say that, actually. She said, I would go get him and drag him to dinner. That's what she says. Now, I disagree with Dax on this. What I do agree with is what I just said. Go check it out. More information. Find out what's going on in your child's life. Be involved. Be a goddamn parent, right? So Cisco goes there with the intent of dragging Jake back and accidentally finds out what's going on. And lo and behold, Jake is trying to teach Nog how to read. Now I'll admit, that made me grin. Just, wow, that's kind of awesome. We don't have common ground. So screw it, we're going to be friends anyways. And the idea of him basically selflessly trying to help him out in a way that effectively gets him in trouble kind of mirrors that earlier thing with O'Brien, right? But now, instead of trying to cover for him so he can be lazy, he's covering for him so he can be better. He has taken those lessons to heart and is applying them properly. And I love that! And then you can see it, good acting by Avery Brooks. You can see on Cisco's face, he's so proud. There's, they even pretty much showcase this towards the end when Jake and Cisco are hanging out and Cisco's just standing there and Jake's like, all right, hang on. And Cisco's just like, awesome. Go have fun with your friend. I approve. This is why it's so important to acknowledge that bias. I plan to talk about this later this year in a rumination, a Friday rumination. So, get excited about that. And I'm not going to cover this topic in full here, because it would require slamming down the controversy box, and frankly, i got other better places to talk about this specific topic. But the relevant point is that we're biased as human beings. It's almost impossible to avoid. And the only reason I say almost is that there might be some way to avoid bias, maybe by literal lack of information, uh, maybe by very, very careful, precise mental discipline. I don't know. But in general, we as human beings, living sentient beings, this applies to fiction as well, are biased. We're biased towards things, we're biased against things. What's important is what we do about that. And Cisco does a pretty good job in this episode of trying to make something out of that. Trying to hold back the reins. Basically not doing the <laughs> thing I was just referencing earlier with regards to usual fiction he actually becomes a supportive father. And the funny thing is, it's almost by accident, but at the same time, he did take careful steps to try and reach this point. 
I like that. So let's switch over to the Godfather plot. That'd be the A plot, where Quark becomes a Nagus. Oh my gosh. Now, there's a bit where... How do I put this? Where There's several instances in which Zek is talking to others, and it's very Godfather. The writers uh, all said many, many times, you know, lots of Godfather influence in writing this episode. And at first glance, you're like, you're kidding, right? But it kind of is. It's just the Godfather in an alien language, it, it, to stretch the metaphor a little bit. Because Zek is smart. Now, I want you to pause and think about that for a second. Zek is the first smart Ferengi. I think. I actually don't remember if Descent happened, or not Descent, the, the Ferengi... Uh, uh, sun episode. That literally just occurred to me. I should have written that down. Oh my god. I have been negligent in my duties. I'm sorry. Zek is the first or second, let's make this absolutely clear, smart Ferengi. <laughs> you know the one, right? The meta metaphasic fields going into a sun. You remember that? Um, he was smart. He was smart too. But I don't remember if that's before or after this. Regardless, with that one exception, the Ferengi to date have been portrayed as comic relief. In fact, most of the time, they are portrayed as actively stupid, as in legitimately non-functioning brain. They do stupid things, they don't think things out, they have no particular plans, they bumble their way around things. They have been actively redunculous in almost all of their presentation up till date. Zek has a brain. And that's just kind of intriguing in its own right. And multiple times in the episode, they showcase, they show and tell how Zek is smart. Now, what I mean by that is, uh, actually, you know what? I, I take it back. Now that I'm thinking about it, I take that back. They never t say that Zek is smart. They always show it. Because he demonstrates his intellect by the way he talks about things, the way he talks about deals, and, and, and uh, the way they can manipulate the situation, the way they could... Uh, present themselves, all that fun stuff. The, so the dinner scene, the dinner scene. I mentioned this earlier. Uh, they're sitting down at the dinner, and Quark's, uh, you know, they're sitting there, and Zek talks about how lucrative the Gamma Quadrant's going to be, how prestigious this whole situation can lead to, what kind of profits it can go, all this smart stuff, and it's all portrayed as if a bunch of, you know, Italian men in suits are sitting around eating Italian, you know, eating pasta, right? Thing is. They deliberately play this for comedy because they actually, they actually go out of the way to show what's usually known as gross humor, like shots of Rom on the beetle, the fake beetle that he's got, stuff like that. And, uh, and of course, they have Wallace Shawn, who can do several different voices, do they? Yeah, kind of a voice the whole time and just kind of come across as if he's just kind of pathetic. Again, the funny thing though, is I'm pretty sure this was actually done just for the sake of comedy. But, from an in-lore perspective, it actually does fit perfectly. Let me ask you something. Obviously, this is going to vary from person to person, but what do we as a general culture tend to value in people as far as leadership qualities, right? Now, I know you're going to go off and say, you know, honesty and dignity, but I mean visually and audibly. Their bodies and their voices and their dress. Because if you notice, 
and I'm sure many other people who are far more qualified have talked about this before, if you notice, a lot of leaders across history have been tall, strong, strapping men or women, you know, uh, Queen, uh, Empress, excuse me, uh, Catherine of Russia is a good example of, uh, you know, Katerina, I should say, is, is a good example of someone who is presented as this big, intimidating, powerful in all these paintings. I'm not actually sure what she actually looked like, but all of the attempts to present her are, you know, dominating kind of a force. And, uh, you know, when we usually, we usually, when fiction, for example, tends to present someone, you know, they've got the strong voice, they've got the powerful voice. You know, women have that strong undercurrent, though, and, and the precise kind of tone they've got going, the very crisp, professional kind of tone, you know, that kind of a thing, right? What are the Ferengi value? Because Zek, in many ways, is the ideal Ferengi. Uh, not all of them. In fact, I could make an argument that Zek, Rom, and Quark, in different ways, are each the ideal Ferengi. And I mean that sincerely. We'll talk about the other two far later in the series. But Zek is... He has very large ears. Let's just start with that. And his voice is very distinct. It can be heard from quite a distance. And he is quick to speak when he needs to. And he is very slow. And he can get his, his tone low and frankly kind of deadly sounding if he wants to. And he can just talk, you know, like this. He, he can do that as well. And I find myself wondering if these are traits that the Ferengi just view as desirable when it comes to a leadership position. And, of course, Zek is smart, so that kind of helps, too. But I digress. Um, it's also interesting. We see cracks. You know, they literally say, oh, you're always in your father's shadow, blah, blah, blah. The funny thing is, cracks really is a boorish oaf when it comes down to it. Very obvious, very dull, and uh, very stupid, to put it bluntly. In fact, he is basically the rom of this episode. And it's therefore so apropos that Rom and him are the ones who conspire against Quark. But if you notice, the way that cracks, bows and scrapes underneath the, you know, underneath Zek's shadow and basically uses Zek's name as a shield for himself is kind of the exact same thing Rom starts to do once Quark becomes Nagus, right? So then they talk about the, they talk about the Gamma Quadrant expansion thing. Now, what I find hysterical is the reason they call that so smart in the episode is because nobody knows us there. We can do whatever we want. We can exploit the crap out of them because they don't know to not trust us yet. Yeah! And yet, there's plenty of other very obvious very lucrative reasons to try and get into the Gamma Quadrant trade. So much so that it's actually funny to me they don't even mention that at all. I mean, I, I hate to pull real-life history into this, and there's a lot of blood and unpleasantness when this comes, but it's worth noting that when the Americas were really starting to be uh, explored and discovered and exploited by the Europeans and, well, the Eastern powers, basically, um, it, I, I mean, it was a new land. There was new stuff. There was new territory. There's new resources. It was like the, the oh, yes, go claim. It was wealth. In almost every way, it was wealth. So, of course, they'd want to reach out to the Gamma Quadrant, right? Plus, you know, they can exploit the hell out of people. Frankie like doing that. But one thing I find very interesting about this scene, it's awesome to me and very appropriate how the toadies all 
lick Zek's boots right up until the moment he stops scratching their head to stretch the metaphor. Because, well, because that's Ferengi politics, isn't it? You feed up and you bite down. So, every single one of them is lavishing him with praise to, to the point of excess about how brilliant this is and about how wonderful it'll be for them right up until he says, I'm giving this power and this wealth and this privilege to someone who isn't any of you. And then they are livid. After all, they expected to be compensated for their toadyism. Now, uh, I'm looking at my notes here. Uh, Grawl, <laughs> there's a little lovely bit where Grawl, uh, he's one of the Ferengi, threatens, uh, threatens Quark in a wonderfully backhanded way. You know, oh, who knows what kind of horrible things could happen to you. Oh, if only someone was there to help defend you in, in exchange for you know, certain concessions when it comes to the Gamma Quadrant, etc., etc. And I liked that. But what I like most about it is it really shines a light on Quark. Quark is an everyman. He's a Ferengi everyman, but he's still an everyman. And this is actually part of his character arc that will continue forth uh, many times. I, I, I plan at least twice more in future episodes to bring up this point, that Quark is a normal person amidst heroes. And I like that. So he's suddenly thrust into the position of the most powerful entity and the most singular focal point in the Ferengi Alliance. And he has no idea how to deal with that. He is in a tier way beyond him. You just took a level one grunt and made him emperor. And he is way out of his league. In fact, I often wondered, and I wondered at this time too, if the coin that distracted him enough to save his life was done deliberately by someone. Because it's awfully coincidental, and he really should have died there. But he didn't, so you know. Um, so, they talk about... Uh, the body thing. Now, my first thought was, why? But then the setting builder in me just wanted to go to town on that idea. Like, I love how much you could do with that. Maybe there's someone that you really didn't like. Really didn't like. And maybe they're a rival, uh, or maybe they took some of your stuff, or maybe they literally were violent against you. Uh, who knows? And they died before you do. I bet you'd be, well, okay, maybe you wouldn't, and frankly, neither would I. But I like the idea that the Ferengi would be lining up, spending way more than they should, just to make sure they get a piece of that guy. Why? So they could always have, you know, I'll use my coin, so they could always have that little piece of him to say, I beat you, as a reminder that they're alive and they are dead. You know, or maybe it's someone you were really fond of. Or maybe, I mean, re people in real life keep around, uh, in some cases, not often, the actual ashes of loved ones in, in urns and whatnot. Usually those ashes are spread somewhere. But sometimes you're allowed to keep the ashes. It depends. You know, it's not that weird of an idea. And I love the concept. So, the assassination attempt you know, happens. Everything goes to hell. Uh, then there's the actual Godfather scene. It's the scene with... Uh, I wrote down his name, didn't I? No, I didn't. With... Uh, Kava or Kar or something like that. Now, it once again showcases how Quark is completely out of his league. Quark is playing the part of the Godfather, but he isn't. He isn't the Godfather. He is. He is not the cr criminal syndicate head. He is not the leader of a of an alliance. 
the only way he manages to make this work is by doing what Crax uh, was doing. He relies on the threat of the name rather than anything that he himself can generate. The only reason he accomplishes anything is because he has that backing of that title, and he relies on it like crutch. And so he gets a good deal, 50-50, all right. Well, let me bring up the obvious. First of all, he agreed to that way too quickly. Second of all, and way more importantly, uh, <clears throat> how's he going to enforce that? What happens when that guy starts giving him 30 or 20 or 10 and saying it's 50? Worse, what if he starts giving him 30, 20, or 10 and not saying it's 50? What if he starts giving him nothing? How's Cork going to enforce it? Because Cork has no real power here. And I don't mean that just in the obvious way. Cork does not know how to play the game. Again, he's out of his league. And I like that. I mean, I do. It's, it's, it's a, an essential part of his character, and it really helps to elevate the episode. Um, so, uh, one thing I have a question for you guys. I really do have an honest question for you. Why do you think Quark retains his attachment to his bar? I don't mean later on. Later on, we have plenty more reason why, why Quark would care about his bar. I mean, he still technically owns that bar in Star Trek Online, although he has since moved on to become a much more significant Enterprise magnate by that time. But point being, you know, why the significance here in the uh, 10th episode? I have two vague theories myself. The first, well, that's his bar. It's basically his home. And remember, he's had that, and we know this, he's had that for longer than the show's been on. He had that during the Cardassian occupation as well. So he might actually have some legitimate uh, sympathetic or uh, you know, a sentimental attachment to it. Second possibility, avarice. I have something. I'm not going to give it up to someone else. And that's it. I'm not sure I buy the second idea. But I'm curious what you guys think, as ever. I love reading your guys' comments. Uh, it's actually, uh, as of now, when I'm recording this, uh, the, the DS9 and the TNG episodes have finally started going live, and it's been an absolute treat uh, hearing all your guys' stories, so thank you for sharing that with all me. Uh, sharing that all with me. So, uh, then the assassination attempt, the second assassination attempt. Now, I want to remind you that I went back to rewatch Deep Space Nine, after a certain point in time, when Rom was a much more fully-fledged, developed character. So it was weird going back to this episode and seeing Rom trying to straight-up murder his brother. I was just like, what? Oh my god! Just, huh? Again, I kind of mentioned that earlier. But what I kind of like about it is Cork loses it when, uh, when, it's, when it's happening. And Rom is basically doing this not to take the Nagus ship. That's going to Karks? Uh, Karks? Cracks. He's so unmemorable. The other guy. But Rom's doing it to get the bar. His, his aspirations are so small. He's willing to kill what at that moment he believes to be the leader of an entire interstellar organization to get a bar. Something about that just kind of makes me go. Now, I also want to say First of all, it would actually be relatively easy, assuming the station staff were having a frickin' brain today, for Quark to actually survive being shunted out the airlock. 
I'm pretty sure they would be able to see, hey, there's a person outside. God, I hope they have some kind of sensor for that, although last episode kind of cast some doubts out of that, and beam him aboard within seconds. It would suck, and he'd probably need to hit the med bay, but, you know, a few seconds of exposure is something that he could survive, as long as he didn't do something extremely stupid and burst a lung. But the really funny part to me is that they do this whole thing, and then it's just kind of swept under the rug. Quark is all proud of his brother, and cracks. He's just back to being a toady. And that's where the parallel really gets interesting to me. I mentioned how Rom was kind of like uh, Crax was to Quark versus to, uh, to Zek. But the truth is, <sighs> Quark himself is a small fish. All of them are small fish. Zek was ahead of them the entire time. Zek had this whole thing planned out. And he even gives an in-depth, and again, showing, not telling, an in-depth way in which Crax could have used his position as toady to the Nagus to gather incredible power and profit. And he's actually disappointed, irritated, that he didn't even think about that. He was so brusque and obvious. <laughs> I do actually like Zek as a character, by the way, if that's not obvious. Um, but we, like I said, we see here that for all, of, for all of his presentation, Quark himself was actually standing in the shadow just as much as Cracks was. I like that. It's a good thing. Good episode. I like this. Woo! I'll be seeing you guys, of course, next time.